Welcome to Refuge by South Shores Church. My name is Christian Davis. I am the digital media coordinator here at South Shores Church in Dana Point, California. Um, I'm hoping you're having a great day. If not, let's hope this episode kind of helps put you in the right direction. That might be high hopes for this, but I'm hoping. Um, this week we have Pastor Derek on, and he helps shine some light on why we're in First Corinthians, um, which is the series, which is the book we're going to be in for the majority of this podcast as as, as we start out, because it's going to take us for a few months, and we're uh, starting at the very beginning of the series, so we're starting in February, but the First Corinthians series did start back at uh, the beginning of January of 2022. So we dive into that. We dive into a little bit of background on Pastor Derek. I don't even know if Pastor Derek even says his name throughout this whole thing. I don't even know if I said my whole name throughout this. So here is this week's episode. So this is the first episode of South Shore's second podcast. Um, did we have a name for the other one? It's just sermon audio. Just sermon audio. Sermon. Yeah, it's classic. And right now at the recording of this, we don't know the name of this, um, but I'm sure it's wonderful and I'm sure that's why you clicked on it. So the first episode of this is going to focus on our new church series, which is Messy Church and the God Who Never Gives Up. That's right. Um, tell us why why it's called that. So we've just came through a whole long, almost year-long series in the book of Acts. And coming out of it, we were going to jump back into the Old Testament uh, but the more uh, Pastor Ty and I were talking about it, felt like we've been with Paul, starting churches, being with them, seeing the spirit move. It'd be good to get into one of his letters so that we would be with the church longer. Uh, Corinth was a place Paul actually spent 18 months. So he really set the groundwork for how they would grow, where they would go next. But one thing, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, um, it's not this ideal. You think of, oh, the first century church, they had it all really good. Uh, they were a mess. And there's something really humbling, but just authentic about uh, dealing with a church full of problems. And looking, if you read through 1 Corinthians, it's going to come out right out the gate. This church has problems. And I think there's something unique about when Christians and churches are able to be forthright and honest with, yeah, we're, we're people and we have sin and, uh, it's not all pretty all the time. So I don't know if you think we thought that about ourselves, but we actually don't. So let's just go ahead and put that right into the title, messy church. We started out and we admitted that the church that we are in has problems. <laughs> That's... Yeah. And, and if we don't do that, uh, I, I don't think that's attractive to anyone. I mean, because people people already know it. They know it in their gut, right, that this church is going to have problems. But somehow we end up thinking, no, we'll, we'll find one. We'll find one that's that's perfect and it'll be great. And all. everyone will just be loving all the time. And that's a value we have. We want to be known by love. But at the same time, we can say, you know what, we don't always hit the mark. So the the other part of the title was, I think, took a little longer to figure out exactly how to add on to that idea of messy church. We knew we wanted uh, the, the point of First Corinthians is not that churches should be messy or that's just we're going to leave them there, but actually that God's doing something in them. So one of the things that struck me when um, 
going back over the book is in the first chapter alone, Paul uses really elevated, high, really pretty astonishing language to talk to him where, you know, I'm sure nobody calls you these things, Christian, um, or me. I don't know. Uh, you, know you never know. Uh, but names places. like kind of language and not just cause it's old, but because he has some really great things. He says that they are the church of God. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, he calls them saints together. Uh, So he has all these great things. And then he even goes so far to say right here in the first chapter that they were enriched in all speech and knowledge and the testimony of Christ was confirmed about you. So he doesn't start off the bat laying into him. You you guys are scum of the earth. He actually says that about himself later. Um, But then he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful. And so we ended up kind of through that thinking, okay, he's sure that they're in Christ. He knows that they're a mess because he's writing to them about all the things that messed up that they're doing. But he's also confident that God's going to do something in their lives, that he's going to work through Paul writing to them and them refining each other. And God's going to do something. So we added in the, and the God who never gives up. Hopefully as people are diving into their Bible and they're hearing these sermons, they remember it's not just that it's messy. God is at work. God's doing something. He's doing something in you. He's doing something in me and he's doing something in our church. What would you say is the biggest uh, goal or reflection point from the whole book that you want people to take away and apply? I think I think at this point in it, for them to be honest with themselves enough and to have, just have an openness, God, what are you trying to correct in me right now? Um, first, I think it'd be, yes, I need to be in Christ and, and get the sights of their, their faith on the right person, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. But with that, okay, now I'm, I'm in this life God, what would you fix? What would you correct? What are you guiding me toward? So I I think if people were to just walk through it, being open to correction from God, I I think that's a grand slam. Last question. Uh, So you've been with South Shores how long? Gotcha. Uh, Since I was an intern uh, for the youth group back in 2003. So considerable amount of time. Yeah. 18 and a half years, if I do math right. <laughs> Numbers are hard. It's, it's not necessarily part of your job. Right? No, right. no, not very often. Um, so in that time, uh, you've, let's see, you started as an intern. Mm-hmm. You moved to, what was the like next step after that? Oh, I was called director of college ministry, um, then director of communications, and then some point pastor communications associate pastor and that involves i think communications and small groups discipleship everything some something a little bit of of something yeah yeah nice variety of things gotcha um so since moving to the pastoral role Mm -hmm. how many series would you say you've been a part of or been a part of creating like yeah, the, the, the theme and yeah. uh, graphics and video and, and stuff. Um, so you shifted more into that role in 2008 and 
So about 13 years, we probably do six or seven series a year. So uh, getting close to 100. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, not too many repeats. That's right. that. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the question I'm leading you towards is um, what is the process of, okay, you've got the book that you guys want to do. Um, you've got the general idea of where you want to go with the series and what the whole point is. Um, where does that bring you for graphics and for breaking down each week for pastors and how does that all? Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of the behind the scenes process. Uh, Pastor Ty, uh, majority of the time, he has certain uh, books of the Bible that he wants to work through. And so then we and we start talking through, all right, how many weeks is this going to be? Um, what are the natural um, kind of thought breakdowns that, okay, this, this should be a whole sermon, this section, this chapter, maybe that needs to be broken down into two, all that kind of stuff. So we end up with, all right, here's the breakdown, here's the book, um, do research into uh, different other resources to help really what, what are the main themes? And then we, we start talking through what are the themes? Because we want, we want to preach the truth of the scripture, number one, what God is saying. Uh, but what ones are maybe touching a nerve or uh, today? Which ones are going to? And, and try to focus on that a little bit more, um, hoping that then as we start to brainstorm what's current common language that helps get at those ideas always looking for what's a what's a picture a metaphor a phrase that just will help this whole series be memorable we could have just called this series first corinthians and and that would work but by calling it messy church and the god who never gives up the hope is to leave our people with some handles so when they're reading through their bible in a year or just a couple years later they pop open to first corinthians they instantly have something that that helps uh, them access that. Moving individuals sometimes feels random. Uh, sometimes it's looking at what sort of art is out in the world um, that's uh, just catchy and pleasing to the eye. And is there a way to, or is there a picture that helps get us there? Sometimes it's really more based on just text, keeping it simple, sometimes uh, try to mix and jump back and forth between more photography-based stuff, more illustrative stuff. Um, sometimes there's just a random idea that comes in the night and it just kind of got to go for it and uh, hope other people see it. And sometimes they do and uh, sometimes they don't. So a part of every series, we um, have these booklets um, I've only been with South Shore since September, but where do you create these little booklets for every series that we go through? Are these meant as like little bulletin supplements or what are these? We haven't been doing these long. Um, I think over the course of the past years and years, uh, we did just a couple of real small, like six week series. We might've created something once every other year. Um, but with our churches push on helping people get into rooted and really appreciating the experience that people have had going through that 10 week process. The idea was how do we help encourage people who've been through rooted to continue in those same rhythms of 
reading their Bible five times a week, of um, taking time for solitude or prayer experiences, getting out and serving. What what are what's the means that we can utilize to help them towards that? And I'm a resource guy. I love giving background info. I love giving people something to carry in their hands. So uh, in the midst of COVID last year in January, we were walking into doing a series in judges we called cultural detox and thought, why not put these resources, uh, put these readings and give them a chance to implement this SOMA uh, Bible reading method. Let's give them all the information. Let's stick it in a book. We weren't wanting to pass out weekly bulletins. And so the idea of them picking up one thing and having it throughout those 10 weeks uh, just seemed really valuable. And um, it's one more place where hopefully we can help them catch on to the big idea of the sermon series or mm. the book we're studying. And I don't know, we put them out there, three, 400 of these each time, and people seem to pick them up and take them. And I see them carrying with their Bible. So sometimes I think maybe that's working out okay. It's, it's really thorough. Like I, I've gone through a couple of them myself, but the most interesting thing to me was uh, Soma. Could you explain, go into that a little bit more for everybody who doesn't know? Yeah. Soma came out of... So it's an acronym, it, uh, but it came out of a desire to not just spoon feed people Bible studies where we prompt every thought they might need to have by a question that helps get them there, but that they instead would learn basic principles of reading the Bible that help them no matter whether they're in Exodus or in Ephesians or in the Gospel of Matthew anywhere in between. So it, it stands for first to soak in the word. So the idea of noticing what's surrounding, kind of getting the context, also really acknowledging if I'm going to learn something, I need the Holy Spirit to help me in this. Um, so you, you soak in it, you read it over a few times, then it make observations. That's the O. Uh, what is there? Uh, what words uh, are there? What's um, not even getting to meaning or importance or anything like that, but just am I noticing what's written in the text? And then you move to meaning. You start asking questions of the author. Why did you write this? What's important about it? Why did God want this in the Bible? Um, what's what's the, the main idea? How can I summarize this whole section? And then finally, once you have that understanding, you know what's there, you know what it means, then just to move into, okay, how should this impact my life? How do I apply it? And so it's four steps uh, that we hope start and end with prayer. And we've seen groups now come together, uh, Bible study groups who then have done that throughout the week. And they really come to their group with, God's been talking to me through reading his word. And these are the ideas and uh, ways it's affected my life. Awesome. Well, we hope this insight into the beginning of the Messy Church series was helpful. Here's the first sermon from Pastor Eric. Did somebody say tamales? That's great. You know, I love preaching here at the 1115 service because when I come in at 11, there's like eight people. And by the time you get up to preach, there's a room ready to hear from God's word. And it's exciting to be here. And it's, I'm also excited feeling really good because... My family already has all our Christmas decorations down and the Christmas lights down and I feel accomplished. You know, it's, it's not every year that it happens like that, but this year was that year. Well, I'm Pastor Eric with our youth ministry, but I'm happy to join you today as we kick off this new series, which has a strange title. 
Messy Church. And what we're going to be doing is examining a letter that Paul wrote, Apostle Paul wrote to members of this house church network in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And now he wrote this near the end of a three-year ministry stint in Ephesus, but he wrote back to Corinth. This is probably in the year AD 53-ish. Now, even though Paul hadn't been to Corinth in a long time, it was heavy on his heart. I think Paul was writing as a parent would to a child whose life has maybe gone off the rails. They've been making choices that as the parent looks on, they're heartbroken. And this is fueling how he's writing and what he's writing. But Corinth, the, the, the city, was kind of a big deal. Geographically, it was on an isthmus, um, a narrow piece of land that brought together the, the Greek mainland with what was, I have to slow down for this, the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Okay, I got it out. This was a beautiful area, as you can see. Uh, and what it did, it brought together business and trading and entertainment and culture from the whole west side of the Mediterranean along with the surrounding area. Keep in mind, Rome was in charge, so their laws and their customs were in place. But on top of that, you had different cultures and different religions all mingling together there. You had a lot of different gods in culture. I like the, the song that the team picked out this morning that talked about the king above all kings. Because in Corinth, they worshiped different gods. That was, in fact, a part of how life worked, how government operated, how festivals took place, how trade happened. And because of this kind of melting pot culture, it became like a destination city. It was seen as an important place, a place where professional speakers would, would hit. They were like philosophers or life coaches, and they would draw huge crowds, and these guys would get up to give their speeches, and they would be very intellectual. They would just try to wow people with their words. They would try to give advice on how to help people climb the social ladder. They were very impressive speakers. Also, Corinth was generally friendly to Christianity, but just kind of because it was because another religion. But again, Christianity declared itself to be the only true religion. Christianity presented a king who was above every other king. That wasn't always popular. But this is the environment where Apostle Paul had brought the news. Paul had brought the good news to Corinth a few years earlier, telling everyone who would listen that Jesus of Nazareth was God. He was the Christ, he was the Messiah, he was the Savior. And he explained and made clear that Jesus' death and then his resurrection wouldn't just be for Jews, but that Jesus would offer forgiveness for the whole world to anyone who would call on his name. And Paul, he harped on this, making it clear that Jesus, rising from the dead, proving he was truly God, offering to forgive your sin if you repent, to be your spiritual father. Paul made sure to say, this all rests on Jesus rising from the dead. And Paul, in his effort, he was pretty successful because enough people believed Paul and his eyewitness testimony that a church was born in Corinth. And like most newborns, as soon as it was born, it got messy. And that's why we're calling this series Messy Church. Now, for those of you who are a little bit cautious right now, we're not saying messy is okay. 
We're not saying messy is God approved. We're just saying that any place sinful beings congregate, it gets messy. But what we will see in this letter, that God and Apostle Paul don't want his church to stay messy. He doesn't want us to stay messy. And we have a God who doesn't give up on us, a God who continually calls his children to a new life, a repurposed life, a reconstructed life. So here's Paul, he's, he's in Ephesus and he's writing to Corinth, which is about 350 miles away. And later on in chapter five, it mentions that Paul wrote him a prior letter. So this letter is the second one actually. And we don't know what the first one was about entirely, but we're pretty sure it was prompted by these problems that were still sticking around. So again, Corinth was a mixing pot of cultures Lots of different lifestyles and religions were celebrated. Sound familiar? The way of Jesus, it was tolerated. It was put up with, but Jesus' way of being the way and the truth and the life, that was hard for people to accept. And this led to problems in the Corinthian church that according to Paul's first letter and now in the second, which we call the first, which is kind of weird, and it would continue into his third letter, he's gonna to try to address it. And we're gonna find out that humans are messy, they're sinful, they're angry, we have bad habits, we can, we can get bitter. And what makes this all such a problem, it's not just the problems themselves, but it's actually how we see the problems. And I wanna show this to you, how this might affect us. I wanna take a little test today I need you all to look at this picture on the screen because it's going to hit all of us very differently, okay? Especially with the youth gathered here, especially with some kids who still live with their parents living here, especially for some husbands here. This is today's Rorschach test. The question is, what do you see? Okay, I hear a mess from someone. Now, some of us are horrified at what you see here. And you're thinking, how could this disgusting, filthy person let this happen? All moms. Some of us, were kind of mildly put off, but really you're thinking, how many dishes would I have to do in order to wash my hands? <laughs> but no more. Some of us are pretending, meaning we see the problem, but we're pretending we don't see it and that we're busy and secretly praying someone else fixes our problem. And some of us are actually entirely blind. You don't see a problem. The Holy Spirit has not revealed it to you yet. So the Corinthian church had problems due to the fact that they hadn't allowed Jesus and his word to entirely reconstruct their lives and they were okay with it. They didn't see the problem in their lives. Yes, they had kind of accepted Jesus, but they'd also let their old life live on. They kind of added Jesus to their life, kind of like you would add a room to a house. So you added a room addition, congratulations, but you kept the broken down, old, sinful house it was attached to. Or another way, maybe they'd done some remodeling and they updated and put, a, put in a fresh kitchen that was really popular on Instagram. But you didn't deal with the mold of your old behaviors and your old habits of sin. Maybe 
They were going to church and they were regularly going to church and they got there on time. That's great, but maybe that's kind of like just installing new doors on your house. Got a new look, but the rest of the house is still rotten through with the termites of pride and arrogance. What the Corinthian church needed and what we need is for the kind of the house of our lives to receive a ground up remodel. A ground up remodel where the very foundation of our lives is made new by Jesus. A ground up remodel where the walls and the boundaries of our lives are now defined by holiness and God's word. And like we just sang, that doesn't lead us into darkness, it leads us into freedom. We need a ground up remodel where all the new windows are installed by Jesus so that we can see others, we can see ourselves, and we can see our sin the way Jesus calls us to. But the Corinthian church had problems and we face similar ones that if we don't address, will pull us away from God, will divide us from each other, and it will hinder and stop the work that God is attempting to do through his church. So it's a, this is a long letter, but in this long letter, Paul's really addressing five major problems. I'm not going to address all five today, but I do want to tell you what, some, what they all are. The first problem he gets to is really spiritual problems. These are things that show... Um, the symptoms are divisiveness, false conversions, ego, popularity, and old sinful behavior. Then Paul's going to deal with sexual problems. And what Paul will do is he will correct them for behaving just like the godless people who had all sorts of manners of sexual problems like visiting temple prostitutes. He's going to correct them, get this, for letting a guy stay in the church who's having an ongoing and active relationship with his stepmother, but they were okay with it. He's going to remind them in this category that their bodies matter. They were designed by God, and God has a way to use them in a God-honoring way. He's going to remind them and tell them that if you're in Christ, your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Then he's going to get to this weird and confusing category of problem. It's food. They were screwing around with communion, for one. And then they were taking food that was sacrificed to idol, and they were eating it in a time or in a place that would, was hurting other people and causing them to struggle. And then he got to the chaos that was happening in their worship gatherings, their weekly gatherings. And Paul is going to just dress them down and give them corrections on how the church gathering should and should not take place so that Jesus stays at the center instead of anything else. And then lastly, as I've mentioned, he's going to address problems regarding how they saw the resurrection. People this early on had started to argue with and dismiss the idea of a risen Jesus. And Paul, in this letter, he tries to kind of wrap their knuckles and say, basically, people, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith and our church are pointless and we are giant idiots that the world should laugh at. But Paul's saying, but it is real. The resurrection is everything. And then Paul tells them again with his megaphone, I saw him with my own two eyes, alive. It all rises and falls on that. So with these five problems, we got a lot of work to do. But it's okay, because like we said, Jesus is not giving up. He's calling for that, that remodel from the ground up.
And the good news is also that every problem that we encounter has a solution found in the gospel. The good news of Jesus' saving work can transform all of life, all of history, and all the future. And if the gospel can provide solutions for us personally, it can also address problems in the church. Let's look at verse 1 to see Paul's greeting to the church at Corinth. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins by establishing kind of the authority of his writing. And his authority came from the fact that he was an apostle. Now people even today try to use this title. I don't think they're doing that appropriately because apostles were special representatives of Jesus, meaning that they were handpicked by Jesus. And Paul had that. He had the same authority as the 12 apostles. In fact, in Acts 9, it records a message from God. The Lord said to him, go, he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You see, Paul had ultimate credibility. Paul had God-given authority to write this letter, to send this letter, and to bring a correction to the church at Corinth. And he made it clear who he's writing to, a very specific person, a person who is sanctified in Christ Jesus, and saints, part of the church worldwide. Now, sanctified and saints are two different words that kind of come from the same word. Sanctified is just the verb. It means to make something holy. And saints is an adjective that describes being holy. And so Paul's greeting is a reminder that God's church is made up of people who have trusted in Jesus for their holiness. It's not just the people in the room at the church. It's to Christ followers, not just Christ observers. And so God's people, Paul's saying, they are to be made holy. They are to live as saints. That means living set apart from the way the world does it and then living a life dedicated to Jesus. And what I think we should see is that saints are not living their own life. Saints are not living their best life. True saints are living dedicated to God. I love the way Paul said this in Colossians 3. He said to them, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Christ becomes the life of the saint. And so the life of a saint has been rebuilt. It gets remodeled from the ground up in the image of God. And now Paul reminds in verse 2 that saints are actually, well, even the saints that are local, they're part of a larger group. They're part of a group of saints globally. That's what he means when he says, together with those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that Christians locally, they're part of a large group of people who are all around the globe are calling on the name 
of Jesus. This is every tribe, every language, every nation, every human being on earth has the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord. That means in Corinth, in Rome, in Afghanistan, and in India, or in Rwanda, in Jamaica, in Manila, in Brazil, in New York, and here. Every human being can call on the name of the Lord. And even that phrase is borrowed from the Old Testament. And oftentimes the Lord would instruct his people to go to a certain place and when you get there, call on my name. Jerusalem, you've probably heard of, is one of those places, kind of like the main stage, the key spot to go to call on the name of the Lord. And I think what's coming to mind for Paul is the prophet Malachi. Malachi, if you've read it, at one point, he's very angry and very frustrated over the way God's people, Israel, were worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem. And Malachi prophesies about a future when God would be called on in a pure way, not only by his people, Israel, but people from every place. Look at Malachi 1.11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So even in his frustration with the people at Corinth and how they were behaving, Paul recognizes that the church in Corinth is a miracle. It's the part of fulfillment of God's plan that he's going to be worshipped by people beyond Israel outside the Jewish people. Malachi said people in every place would call on his name. The nations will call on his name. People in Dana Point would call on his name. Now Paul's going to pray for the church in Corinth, and it's safe to say he'd pray it for South Shores too. Let's read it in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul sets a really good example for us because he thanks God for the people that are screwing up. Paul's going to give them a very stern correction later on for how they have been abusing the spiritual gifts they have. But in this prayer, he's still giving thanks for the people and their gifts. And then also he's thankful for their eagerness for the return of Christ. And that should give us pause today, probably, to think, how am I handling the gifts God has given me? Am I using them wisely? Am I using them for the Lord? And then thinking again, am I eager for Jesus to come back? Or am I more eager for the football season or school to be over? Paul then talks about in his prayer God's faithfulness, that he's going to sustain, he's going to hold up believers to the end, that he's going to provide a means for those believers to be guiltless before Christ. And what we should see in that is that when we pray for other people, it's not about you having confidence in the person, it's you having confidence in the person you're praying to. That Jesus can keep them guiltless if they know him. That Jesus can forgive them 
And that's why we say we have a God who never gives up. He will sustain his people to the end. He'll find his people innocent when they stand before God because of what Jesus has done. And that's the motivation why believers, Christ followers, are called to live set apart from sin, set apart from the way that goes against God. Now in verse 10, we're going to begin what will become a four-chapter long, almost a rant from Paul regarding one of the biggest root problems in the church at Corinth. And it's a root problem that many churches still suffer from today. Division in the church. Division, and for the young people, we're not talking about math, so I hope you're not triggered there. Division in the church is about breaking people in the church apart from each other. It's cutting up relationships. It's severing ties based on preference. It's segregating yourself based on pride. The division Paul's talking about with the people in God's church, they're disconnected from each other based on pride instead of united around the Savior whose blood has bought them. See, human pride had infected the church at Corinth and it led people in the church to value stuff that doesn't have value. They were valuing outward appearance and and talking fancy, being eloquent. They were valuing prestige over the real work of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says and see how agitated he is. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. See, the Corinthians are behaving in a way opposite of Christ. Instead of actually uniting together under the name of Jesus, they find ways to have preferences that are misplaced. They have found a way to have a devotion for things that are not important. In this case, I think it has to do with the different preachers who are in in these churches. People were focused on who they thought was the most well-spoken preacher, or they were caught up on which preacher had baptized them. And they were getting big-headed, and they were dividing over these things. In part, I think, because the Corinthian society was so hyper-focused on social status. And that, sadly, kind of bled into the church. So people were caught up in being part of the in-crowd that followed a fancy speaker like maybe Apollos, or trying to gain status by saying that they had been baptized by Cephas. And here we're going to see Paul getting livid with them. And he's going to attempt to correct them, and he's goes into this line of absurd question asking in verse 13. And he goes, is Christ divided? Obviously no. Was Paul crucified for you? He asked them. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name, but I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. What I think we should remember is for almost three centuries, the church met in people's personal houses. And it would follow that the houses that held the most people were owned by the more wealthy, well-to-do members of the church. But even a large home has limited space. So as the church grew, eventually it would be forced to meet in more than one house and then another 
and then another. And with this arrangement, you can see how easily divisions and separations could develop. I'm imagining people sharing lunch together and someone says, wait, you got baptized by Cephas? Okay, okay. If you got baptized by Cephas, you can't go to Chloe's gathering on Sunday. You'll want to go to the Gaius gathering. All the Cephas baptists meet there. It's kind of a big deal. By the way, the mayor goes there. Or maybe you're in the parking lot and you see someone and you hear, what do you think about the message today? Um, I really don't like Paul's preaching. Um, Paul gets so heavy at the Stephanus house. And by the way, I can't keep up with Paul. Also, is his voice annoying to you? You know what? I'm going to go to the Christmas house on Sunday now. I can hear Apollos preach because that guy, he's been speaking in the stadiums. He can really blow my mind. And by the way, all the educated people go there too. You should come. People were caught up with their preferences and not caught up with Christ. They were caught up with image and not about the image of Christ as king. Now let's talk about the Greco-Roman world again. This was a world unlike ours. Their professional speakers that they had were kind of like our athletes today. Where people go, Kobe Bryant? is You saw Kobe Bryant? I have to go where he's going to go. These professional speakers were like that. They'd go from city to city giving these TED-style talks that showed how good they were at entertaining and talking and weaving language together masterfully. Even they had sporting events back then where instead of sports, they had speeches. Kind of weird. But the culture got used to this. And they were sort of expecting it and then demanding it in their churches. And if they didn't get it, they were dividing. If they didn't get it, they were sending an angry email. If they didn't get it, they were whispering and complaining to their friends. And so Paul, in this letter, is leveling with them and making sure they know what's truly important, which is not the eloquence of the pastor. It's not who baptized you. It's not whether or not you're baptized. It's not the status you have or the volume of the music or the style of the songs. It is about the message of Christ being preached. Look at verse 17 with me. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's going to kind of admit something that his preaching probably wouldn't have won a speech competition. He admits also prior that there are plenty of people he didn't baptize and he was glad about it. And what he's saying in verse 17 is that those things aren't the point. The goal of his preaching is not to sound eloquent. The goal of, of the goal is not getting baptized by somebody important. The goal of all these things is the power that's built into the gospel message. The goal is Christ. The target is the gospel being proclaimed. But quickly, some of you are thinking, wait, so baptism's not important? Well, yeah, baptism's important. Jesus commanded that. However, baptism is a secondary issue. Baptism takes a back seat to the proclamation and the power and the good news of the gospel. More simply, hearing and believing the gospel, hearing and believing the gospel is essential to you being saved. Baptism is not. So Corinth, very messy church. 
South Shores can be a messy church. But Jesus is not giving up on us. He's calling us, each one of us, to a ground-up remodel using the gospel as our blueprint. Remember, a, a new foundation for our lives, which is Christ. New walls, new boundaries that set us on a path of holiness. And then, new windows installed by Jesus so that you can see others, you can see yourself, you can see your sin the way Jesus wants you to. I love the beep that that makes. It's yeah, so you, you do? You haven't said that? No, I know. Yeah. It's, it's the greatest feature of this little recorder. So that was Pastor Eric's message. Pastor Derek, what would you say is the biggest thing we can all take and apply week to week from this? Well, I think one of the important things that Pastor Eric hit on and, and we see right here in chapter one is what are we dividing over? Um, is it preference? Is it because you like one pastor's teaching more than another? What What's the point of the pastor there? It's not to point to himself. Um, pastor Ty's not up there to point to himself. Pastor Eric's not up there to point to himself. That's not what I'm doing or Micah or Ron or, you know, these other pastors that you can easily watch on YouTube or jump onto their podcast. If they love Christ, the reason they're teaching, the reason God has gifted them to do what they do is not to point to themselves at all. It's to point uh, people to the gospel so that they would know the power of God um, and be able to be saved from their sin. I think understanding um, where everybody comes from with things as well is crucial to not only loving them the way Jesus would, but also just for our own sake as a body of believers is to understand each other first and then move from there. And if we can't understand each other first, then of course we're just going to divide and hurt each other and then the never-ending cycle of hurt just keeps going. Totally. And, you know, it's it's... It's pretty interesting reading through First Corinthians. We'll keep getting into more of this, but Paul really elevates this idea of unity um, throughout, and he's not one to um, slack on theological integrity. So it's not one in spite of the other, but that this there is this great goal of us to be united as a church, a body. Um, Jesus Himself praying uh, in the Gospel of John that his disciples would be one, that we would be one in him. I think sometimes maybe we forget about how powerful unity can be. And Paul's getting to the heart of that right here in First Corinthians. Um, don't let popularity contests divide you. And um, the more we can be together, believing the right things and focused on Christ that's a powerful witness, I think, for the world, and it's uh, something powerful for how we can uh, help each other as we follow Christ together. Yeah. That's it for this week, everybody. Next week, it'll be Pastor Ty as he finishes chapter one of First Corinthians. Mm-hmm.